A few years ago, I saw the same woman at the gym whenever I went in the mornings. Something about her bothered me. I think it felt like she was trying too hard, panting on the assault bike, gasping while she held plank and groaning as she flung the battle ropes into the air. Couldn't someone tell her to relax? Then a few months later, I saw that same woman out at the bar. She recognized me from the gym and we started chatting. She told me how she just left her husband and that she wouldn't have survived the process if it wasn't for going to the gym. I remember being scared talking to her. I found her unsettling, something about her rawness, her vulnerability. I think I on some level felt the storm brewing in my own life and knew I was looking through a window into my future. In 2021, I made the decision to leave my marriage. Nothing could have prepared me for the waves of grief that hit me then. I remember my therapist saying I was going through emotional surgery and that I was going to feel a lot worse before I came out the other side feeling better. During that time, I joined SPIN and would show up and sit in the back in the dark with the neon lights flickering around me, cranking my feet desperately as if I could somehow outrun my pain. Finally, I understood that woman from the gym. It turned out we were part of the same club. You're listening to Thread the Needle, a podcast that explores the meeting place between feminist ideals and the realities of women's lives. I started this show as a way to explore how feminism fits into my life. My goal is to use my background in journalism and to draw from women's life experiences to add to the conversation on topics that matter to fellow feminists like you. Today, you hear a lot about women choosing themselves when leaving a marriage. I think choosing yourself can sound a little vague, but it becomes more clear when you look at the opposite of that, abandoning yourself. During long stretches of unhappiness that I couldn't fully explain, I looked up a definition of this term. Self-abandonment is when you reject, suppress, or ignore parts of yourself in real time. As a kid, I remember trying to suppress desires in order to stay close to my mom. I loved her so much, and I just never wanted to let her down. I remember feeling like if I went and played with other kids at the cafeteria, instead of sitting with her, I'd be betraying her. When I got older, I felt ungrateful and bad for wanting to do things like go to concerts or parties with friends. Eventually, I began acting out as a rebellion against that guilt. These are things I can see now as normal desires for that stage of development. But what I internalized as a universal truth was that following my desires hurt the people I loved. What I didn't learn was that conflict in the short term can actually be an opportunity to build better relationships, not destroy them. The problem with abandoning yourself is that it erodes your self-confidence. You know how when you do something you want to do and it works out, you've laid a brick in your house of self-trust? Well, turn that on its head. Once you go down the road of self-abandonment, it becomes more and more confusing and difficult to turn your life around and begin listening to yourself again. Admitting unhappiness in a marriage can feel like a huge betrayal, not only to your partner, but to yourself. Maybe that's why I hid this knowledge away from myself for so many years. I wasn't ready to face the consequences of this new reality. 
there are so many circumstances that can lead to this self-abandonment. And often it's no one's fault, but can be a result of conflicting needs and desires or not being on the same page at the same time. That's why I think it's so important to talk about divorce and to shift the way we think about it. Today, no-fault divorces are legal in all 50 states, and this allows people to divorce due to irreconcilable differences. This change started to happen in the 60s, and it really marked a huge shift in the way that we think about divorce. It essentially takes a process that was by nature adversarial and changes it into a process that allows couples to decide together that a marriage isn't working out and no one has to be wrong. Today, we'll get started by looking at the history of women divorcing in the U.S. with author April White. We'll hear from feminist author Ashton Applewhite about her study of women who felt they couldn't be themselves within their marriages. And finally, we'll talk to Washington, D.C.-based writer Jenny Rothenberg about the complex emotional process she made of making the decision to end her marriage the possibility of respect and goodwill through the process, and both the grief and payoffs waiting on the other side. If you look back at the history, you can quickly see that the way we think about divorce has evolved right alongside the way we think about marriage. In the early 1800s, people began marrying for love. But before that, marriage was primarily a tool to strengthen alliances between families. Today, love is still a central pillar of marriage in the U.S., but it actually has continued to evolve even from there. A few years ago, I read this book, The All or Nothing Marriage by Eli Finkel. He argues that we hold marriage to perhaps unrealistic expectations, wanting to find one person who can be our lover, our best friend, and fulfill our every need. While Finkel encourages married people to take a little pressure off their marriages and lean on community too, he also celebrates our evolution and ideals around marriage. He points out that today, people turn to marriage as a path to self-actualization, self-discovery, and personal growth. There's more of this idea that you can find a person to be your perfect mirror and help you become the best version of yourself. So he asserts that the best marriages today are better than the best marriages of earlier eras. Just as the best marriages have gotten better, the best divorces have also gotten better. As writer April White explored in her book, Divorce Colony, at the turn of the 20th century, women filed for two out of every three divorces. It's interesting to note that women still file for the majority of divorces in heterosexual relationships. But over a century ago, White found that it was driven by a much more financial and social need. Women needed the legal sanction of divorce more than men did. A man who wanted to leave his marriage often had the option of simply walking away. He would have most likely been the person who had the income and the property in the family. So marriage was not an economic necessity for him. He most likely had no issue with whether the children were uh, illegitimate or legitimate. He could claim them or not claim them and, and make that choice, which was not a choice a woman had. So there were all these reasons that a man did not necessarily need a divorce in order to operate independently in society. As White studied more high-profile cases of divorce at the time, she was stunned by how much the process pitted a married couple against each other and how black and white the reasoning had to be. 
Divorce at the time was an adversarial process. You had to take your spouse to court. You had to accuse them of one of a number of grounds, and you had to prove that to a judge. So a judge would look at the evidence that you had brought and say, okay, yes, your spouse did desert you. Your spouse did commit adultery. Or they would say, "Mm, no, you haven't convinced me. You are still married. There was no option there for people to say, oh, you and I mutually want to get divorced. In, in fact, doing so in most states was considered collusion, and you were automatically ineligible to get a divorce if you were colluding to get a divorce. For the best chance of being granted a divorce, women fled to Sioux Falls, South Dakota, where randomly divorce laws were the most lax at the time. While divorce rates remained low compared to today, White was still struck to see the lengths that some women were willing to go to secure a divorce. The women I'm writing about are wealthy white women. Circumstances are even more difficult for people who are not white or wealthy at this moment. But their socioeconomic position gives them the opportunity to do something very difficult. They are making the decision to leave their community, potentially leave their religious community, potentially leave behind their family. There are a lot of risks they are taking to do this. And they are going to go long distances for a long time at great expense to get what is still a legally dubious decree, hoping, hoping that that will be the freedom they need. And I I think that takes a lot of bravery. It's a very, very lonely individual act for these women. Once I started really looking into this, I realized what an important tipping point uh, the Sioux Falls divorce colony was for our social acceptance of divorce in this country. We have seen this incredible steps forward in marriage. We've seen this, you know, expansion of the opportunity and the benefits that come with that. Uh, and we celebrate those as civil rights victories and we should. But I realized we've never had that same interest in divorce. We, we've never looked at the advances that have been made around access to divorce as a victory. And we have to, if we want to say you should be able to love who you love, that means letting people marry. And it also means letting people divorce. In 2020, it's estimated that 1 million women in the U.S. filed for divorce. When surveyed, women cited reasons including improved earning power, a mismatch of emotional needs, and inequalities in household labor as all common reasons. In the late 90s, feminist author Ashton Appleway interviewed 50 women who left their marriages for her book, Cutting Loose, to try to understand why so many women were choosing something so difficult. And an interesting pattern emerged. Every woman I talked to struggled really long, really hard to to meet the central challenge. They wanted to connect with their husband and support their marriage without losing themselves in the process, and they couldn't pull it off. Being wives and being themselves turned out to be mutually exclusive. Applewhite didn't sugarcoat the pain of the decision, though. We women are used to seeing ourselves in relation to others. And we often feel that when a relationship ends, a piece of ourselves goes along with it. In the wake of my separation, I felt this acute pain, and the only way I could really describe it was it being how I imagined it would feel to have a limb removed 
or how I thought a mother must feel if their baby was crying in the other room and they couldn't get to it. In a long relationship, so much happens between two people that it can sometimes feel like the gestures, the acts of love, or the hurtful things all get swallowed up with time and lose their meaning. But once our marriage was over, my experience at the end was a strong feeling that it all mattered. You know the upside down in Stranger Things? For me, it was like I was experiencing our relationship all over again in the upside down, where all of the loving moments between us I now experienced through pain and grief. When you grieve, you feel everything that happened between you playing out again in your heart, in your dreams, in your body. There's a great irony in this. While processing the grief, I felt in a way closer to my ex than I had for years. I wanted to escape the pain, but it was also the last piece of the relationship I had to hang on to, and I wasn't ready to say goodbye. Relationships can hit a point where there's no going back. Too much has happened. There's too much hurt and pain. But we'll never know if either or both partners had made different choices along the way. Maybe the relationship wouldn't have ended. But even if the pain couldn't be avoided and it had to end, all of the good that happened in the relationship still matters. Applewhite holds to the conviction that it's worth facing the loss and pain if it means regaining your sense of self. It's not a failure but it is a loss. And I think that's a really key distinction. The end of a marriage is a loss, but not a failure. It's really the opposite. It's a victory over inertia, terror, conformity, this inner voice that says good wives and good women don't do this over insecurity and countless other demons. People like White and Applewhite are helping to raise awareness of the important role of divorce and to remove some of the stigma associated with it. But still, making that decision is an extremely personal one. Some people have lightning bolt moments or a straw that broke the camel's back. For me, it was more of a slow unraveling. Just like White pointed out, it's a very lonely and isolating process too. When facing most decisions in my life, I'd had a bad habit of deferring to everyone else's opinion, whether it was my mom or a random girl I met in the bathroom at the bar. But in this situation, I was acutely aware that since I was the one who would have to live with the decision for the rest of my life, it had to come from me. That's how it was for Jenny Rothenberg, too, who finalized her divorce in 2022, but spent years before grappling with the decision. Today, she and her ex-husband live two doors down from each other, are in group counseling to navigate co-parenting, and still consider each other friends. They share joint custody of their two children who alternate between their houses every couple days. For us, it's just kind of the perfect amount of space. We're not right next door, but it's very easy to coordinate. So far, it's been working out well, and everyone, including the kids, are adjusting to the change. It's been a really, really helpful thing for us that this is all happening at a time when kids are learning anyway, that families can look different. It's actually given us more freedom to do this in a way that is more harmonious instead of falling into the default binary of either you're divorced and you're severed and you hate each other or else you have to stay married under the same roof. If you'd told Jenny several years ago that she'd be divorced today, she wouldn't have believed you. Where neither my parents nor his parents were divorced and... None of our grandparents were divorced. 
So it didn't compute for me for a long time that I could be a person who would get divorced. It was just the scariest thought. It was unthinkable. For Jenny, it was a slow process of growing apart. My ex and I have different narratives of what went down. We've worked yeah. really hard to to combine the narratives and to well to at least reconcile them so that one narrative completely exists in a different universe than the other. That it can be very confusing if they don't line up at all. I think we've accepted the fact that we're always going to see the way things happen a little bit differently. I think what people often don't realize is, you know, divorce often isn't about having that one big fight where you storm off. And, and this, by the way, is a big bone I have to pick with the movie Parent Trap, is it, it, this idea that these parents just sort of tempestuously rushed off to different coasts and took their children with them and that the kids could get their ki- parents back together just by making them remember how much they loved each other. Maybe some divorces are like that, but I would guess that far more often there's a long period of time where one or both of the partners are just grappling with what this means and not quite ready to face it yet. And it's not about some thing that needs to be fixed or some grand romantic gesture that needs to be made. One relationship coach I talked to said that relationships last when both people can be accepted as fully themselves. For years, I felt there was only one me in my marriage. I could share everything and I was accepted. But over time, I felt an offshoot began to grow. It suddenly felt like there was a part of me I didn't know how to share anymore. Jenny can remember a shift when she began feeling like there were parts of herself she needed to hide. What happened with me was I just found myself almost feeling sneaky in ways where I just wanted to hide in the bathroom and journal on my phone or or take a little longer to go walk through a garden after work. I felt like I was kind of stealing time for myself and creating a whole inner world that I felt very protective of. And it took a long time to recognize that as a sign that we would be better off not being in a romantic relationship. She could also feel there were things about her husband she didn't understand. And that also felt threatening. Just the times when he would be really elated about something and really just off on cloud nine, I didn't understand. And I actually kind of feared a bit because I could feel it was taking him in a direction where I couldn't or didn't want to follow. And what it felt like in practice was that we were keeping each other from being happy in a really sad and hard to understand way. But I think the when it start, what started to feel very validating was we had a period where we were kind of just decided we were going to let each other do whatever it was that we wanted to do and take more of an independent position within the relationship. And immediately he started doing things that were even more (laughs) different from me than I'd ever thought he would, but he was so happy. He'd go to these weekend events and come back just so joyful in a way that I couldn't entirely relate to or or understand, but I was so able to be supportive of him finally. And it was such a relief. Before Jenny was willing to ask for a divorce, she felt she had to pursue every avenue to make it work. I think I felt a a need to check all the boxes, as they say. And I think I wanted to be in a position where if anyone said, oh, but but if you try this and if you try that, and maybe this will work, that I could tell them, yes, we've done that. I think it served us very well that our go-to move is always to do research and to go to meetups and to read books and to meet new people. So there was a very long period of just trying to figure out what the options were. And every time we thought we were coming up with something new, we would find someone else who was already doing it. And I just wish there were a lot more people who were visibly making different choices so that when someone finds themselves in that situation, they already would know a lot of options that are available to them. At some point in the process, it becomes clear that there's nothing else to try. 
you've officially reached a dead end. The basic existential question that we had to address is, does marriage mean staying with someone at the cost of very personal, intimate forms of growth and kind of of why you're here on the planet? And if those things can't be lined up, is it all right to not be married anymore? Finally, at some point, Jenny and her husband did make the decision to divorce, and they shared the news with their family and friends. It was really hard for her seeing the mixed reactions from other people because when you end a marriage, it not only is emotional for you, but tends to be for also the people in your life. And for women in particular, I think the idea of being married is still so tied to our womanly duty, and especially if we're, if we're mothers, our, role, our responsibility to keep the family together. It's very, very easy to shame a woman by telling her that she's choosing her own happiness over her family or over her obligations. The columnist Cheryl Strayed in her Dear Sugar column said something interesting once about the difference between her first marriage and her second marriage, which is that the two men were very similar. They were were both artists. They were both outdoorsy types. They were both kind. They're both politically leftist. But there was something about her second marriage. She called it magic sparkle glue. There was just something that was holding it together romantically and that even when they would fight, which they would fight, there was never any question of them separating romantically. And I've seen friends come very close to separating with their spouses to the point where one of them's even thinking of moving out. And then just before that happens, they have this realization of, no, I don't want this. I don't ever want to be without you as my romantic partner. So I do think, you know, hats off to anyone who's been in a long-term relationship or a marriage. But at the same time, there is this expectation that it's always going to work out that way. And that magic sparkle glue is always going to be there. For Jenny, when she shared the news with her ex's aunt, she was really touched to find support where she wasn't expecting it. We had to tell all of the extended family members one by one. And there was a moment where his aunt was visiting and I'd always had a really lovely relationship with her. And she got me alone at the kitchen table at one point and said, all right, I need to hear your, your story. And I started to get anxious. And she said, the thing is, Jenny, I know you. And I know you would never make a decision without being incredibly thoughtful about it. And to hear that from his aunt, his, his mother's sister, who you know cared about him so much, just was incredibly moving to me. And that, that was the kindest thing I think I heard from anybody in my extended family and, and my friends and coworkers was basically just, I know you and I know that you wouldn't do something like this without really considering it and trying to do the best thing under the circumstances. Part of what touched Jenny so much was the acknowledgement of the difficulty of the situation. Jenny pointed out that while authors like Glennon Doyle and Elizabeth Gilbert, whose books I've both read and loved, have given us examples of women who are thriving after divorce, they arguably lean too far in that direction, wiping out some of the complexity that's a reality for many women. You hear a lot about men having Madonna horror complexes. It's I think women have kind of almost like a a harpy goddess complex. It's so easy to either see ourselves as these terrible, selfish, untamed, emotional creatures who are just recklessly disregarding everything else and ruining people's lives, or as these exalted, magical creatures who are choosing ourselves and healing the whole world somehow by just being true to ourselves. And in a way, I think I can see why the second idea of the goddess was a necessary reaction against the first idea of the sort of the Jezebel, the woman who 
is out to destroy men and out to destroy everything. But I, I don't think we should necessarily need to make ourselves into these exalted goddesses who are defiantly choosing our own happiness. I wish there were a way we could just realize what a situation is and then try to make the best choices for ourselves and everyone else within it. Well, Jenny's open about the hardship she's been through. She feels stronger for it. A lot of women, whether they've been divorced or widowed, a real test of their new strength is the first relationship they have after that. And the first heartbreak they have after that, it sucks. It's like having the flu. It's never fun to have a breakup but it doesn't have to completely destroy your world. And I think that was a fear I had for a long time that I was going to leave this marriage and then end up in another situation and then have that not work out. There was a a breakup I had in the course of the past six years after we ended our romantic relationship where I realized afterwards that I was actually okay. I remember there were these summer evenings of just lying in the hammock and just feeling a little bit of emptiness, but feeling so empowered by the fact that I had the space that I wanted in myself and in my life and just really kind of almost burning it all down to the ground and seeing where I wanted to start to build up from again. Coming out of my marriage, I felt like an awkward newborn. Being in this stage as an adult is humbling because we often feel that as life goes by, we're supposed to be building and building and growing consistently. We don't like the idea that we may sometimes need to tear everything down and start over again. I hadn't realized until this whole process started that I'm part of a sort of a siblinghood with a lot of humanity that has gone through struggles, has gone through relationship struggles and other kinds of struggles. And a lot of people who are secretly walking around feeling shame because they're not who they're supposed to be. I think there's always going to be a part of me that's still the little girl that told my babysitter that being good is one of my favorite things. But my my understanding of what it means to be good has really changed. And being good can sometimes mean saying things that are difficult to say. It can sometimes mean feeling really sad and lost and haunted and realizing that that's actually okay, that I can feel those ways and I can still be me. I think there were times where the most painful part was that I didn't recognize the person who was having those feelings that we would call negative because I'm not a person who has those feelings. So therefore I wasn't me anymore. And it's that whole, you know, whole idea of the shadow self and just being able to be whole in all the different phases of what you are. So I think my sense of who I am is much, much bigger now. And my sense of what it means to be good is much, much different. While overall empowering, Jenny still feels grief over her decision that can hit in unexpected moments. I remember watching the cartoon Up, which is a, a Pixar movie about that widowed man who ends up flying off with a bunch of balloons to a South American jungle and having an adventure. And there's this really poignant sequence at the beginning where the couple, you see their whole life together flashing by in a few minutes. And I can remember watching that and being in tears because that was my husband and me. That was what we were going to do. We were going to live our whole lives together and grow old together. And when things start to unfold more in your adult life and more of your your true nature starts coming out and more of your self-actualization starts happening and it's not conducive to that, it's very painful to let that go. But what she's gotten is the opportunity to be fully herself. That's how it's been really empowering for me is just breaking from the script that I was so afraid to break from, having everything in my life with my career and my family and everything just right along the perfect track to see what would happen if I shook things up and didn't follow the script anymore. 
and there's a different kind of strength and a different kind of okayness that you need to tap into when you do that. And that's been very powerful for me. A few days before recording this episode, I was driving to a doctor's appointment and saw this woman in all pink walking alongside the road. She had short, windswept hair, dyed blonde, and she just looked so joyful. She was looking up into the sun and reminded me of a sunflower growing up towards the light. I had to do a double take to confirm that yes, this was the woman from the gym I'd seen years before. Everything about her demeanor felt different to me now. I saw ease where I saw insecurity and confidence where I saw vulnerability. I was gripped by a strong feeling that this woman wouldn't be able to be this version of herself if it wasn't for leaving her marriage. It's not that she physically could not have worn a pink dress or cut her hair, but I wondered, would she have? And would she have that expression on her face? What I saw was a woman living on her own terms. And maybe if I could see that liberation in her, like I could see her struggles years before, maybe that meant that same freedom lived within me too. I don't want to have a life that I fell into. I want to have a life that I actively choose every day. I used to have so much existential dread about time passing because I felt that I hadn't started my life yet. Now I've started my life. It's been a painful rebirthing, but my life finally feels like it's mine. I'd read a lot about people saying that taking self-responsibility is an important part of any divorce, but I didn't really know what that meant. Now it made sense. For me, it meant taking responsibility for my unhappiness and for the decision to leave the marriage. It meant acknowledging the ways I contributed to the dynamic that made us both unhappy. It's been a process of mending my relationship with myself, building a relationship with myself, and feeling grateful for a second chance. You've been listening to Thread the Needle. I'm Donna Schill. Thanks for listening to this episode on women and divorce. If you think a friend could benefit from this episode, please share it with them. And if you like the show, please leave a review and help spread the word. Thanks for listening. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.